0: Yeah. Listen, I'm not going to waste any time. We need to study the Word of God here together tonight, and we're going to spend our time in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. I want you to imagine with me for a minute that you work, or that, sorry, you have a friend who owns the Mumber Difflin Paper Company, and uh, I want you to assume that that friend of yours is selling this company. This is actually based on a real story. So the seller of the paper company uh, has found a buyer. The buyer is very excited about it. Looks at the looks at the company and thinks I can do a lot with this. Looking forward to you know. Um, Putting my hours in and spending the time necessary to make this thing grow. All of the growth projections, they've done their research, are all up and to the right. It's going to be fantastic. So um, they make a deal. Uh, The deal is is not a straight sell. It's a sale over time. So the seller is going to receive the buyer's money over time. So in some senses, they're partners now. But the seller promises he's going to pay. Of course he is. Within a week of changing guard, the biggest client leaves. In fact, the client makes up something like 40% of the sales. So the buyer is in a lot of trouble now because he was counting on this Client to remain. The client wasn't super excited about it because, you know, as a change of management, sometimes you just, there's an opportunity for you to think twice about whether or not you want to keep buying your paper from Mumber Diffin, whatever it is. <laughs> the buyer, in the quiet moments, feels duped. Because he thinks to himself, why in the world would I have bought this paper company if I knew that the client wasn't going to go? In fact, there's some evidence maybe that the, that, that the seller knew this fact. Some evidence that maybe they exchanged emails questioning whether or not, you know, who's this new person going to take your business over? And the seller's like, don't worry about it. The buyer's like, the, the, uh, the client's like, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure we're going to be able. We're going to shop it around, but they still sold it with this knowledge. So the buyer's livid. He's like, "You should have told me. You actually had a responsibility to inform me of that." The seller is saying, "Yeah, but I did. I told you that things might not stay the same. Yeah, but you weren't specific, and you knew exactly what was going on. So you just unloaded this on me. Now you want all of this money, millions of dollars, for your paper company, which is worth nothing. And I'm not going to pay." Not when you've defrauded me. So they lawyer up, as you do. Just so happens that they both attend the same church. And my job as pastor is to go and speak to each one of them now. As a minister of the Word of God... And the gospel of God, what should I say to them? Is it justified? Should they sue? What counsel would you give to the buyer who won't pay? Made a deal? kind of going back on their word. What kind of counsel would you give to them from a Christian point of view? What kind of counsel would you give to the seller who is livid, because they're not going to get their money. They built their whole retirement on this particular issue. Millions of dollars they're not going to get. Well, what you've got in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 11, is uh, addressing basically a situation like this. We don't know the exact details, but what we do know is it's a lawsuit that one Christian has brought upon another Christian within the church in Corinth. So, what are they to do? They've chosen the path of the secular law court. You know, the Roman law court. And I'll just give it out uh, at the very beginning here. The Apostle Paul is livid, as you'll see. Really, really angry. Like angry on a level that he's not usually angry in the Bible. He's really mad, and uh, the question you have to ask is, well, why would he be so angry about this? And this leads me to my six reasons. That's right, there are six of them, and that's why we're getting started quickly. Six reasons why it's crazy to sue believers. Fellow Christians. Why God doesn't think it's a good idea. Why the Apostle Paul's mad about it. And why we shouldn't do it. Here's the first one. Here's the first reason. Um, we can sort it out ourselves. shouldn't go to the courts. Because we can sort it out ourselves. This is basically Paul's argument throughout the first six verses. It's pretty... It's pretty straightforward. Uh, When one of you has a a grievance against another, before we really get into this, I have to tell you what it was like in the Roman world for people to have grievances with each other. It was very similar to these days. I know there are those who might walk around and say, no, no, it's so unique and different. Actually, no. The way it worked was that uh, if you were a wealthier person, had a higher social standing, you were allowed to, s- to sue people of the same social standing as you, or you were able to sue somebody who was of less social standing than you, so a poorer person. You can't sue up, okay? You can't sue up. So if I'm a wealthy uh, landowner and I go to the court. The court is not like what we would have. The court actually is in the middle. The magistrate is in the middle of the marketplace. I don't know, maybe he set up a spot in the middle of the mall. And so you go to the magistrate, and you say, I got an issue with this guy over here. He didn't whatever. I need you to make a judgment between me and him. And so then they appoint a judge often. The judges were really, really aware of The social standing of the litigants, okay? So, like, if I'm a really important guy, which, of course, I am. If I'm a really important guy and you're not a really important person, the jury, who is made up, by the way, of people who owned land and had enough, they actually was the the threshold. You had to actually own the equivalent of a $750,000 piece of property, okay? So you can put yourself in that category right now. How many of you could be jurors? You had to be rich, male. And usually the rich male guys were friends with the rich guy who was doing the suing. So you can see how this could turn sideways really quickly, yeah? So usually the guys who had a lot of money could sue the people who didn't have a lot of money. And they would always win because the judge knew them and everybody else knew them, right? Just like today, right? (laughs) Right? Okay. So when one of you has a grievance, and that's what they're talking about. They're going to go to the... We're going to go to the magistrate in the middle of the town. One of you has a grievance against another. This is within the body of Christ, within this church in Corinth. Does he, look at, there's the word, dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? This word actually in the Greek is right here. The word dare, the first word in this entire passage is dare? Who do you think you are? How dare you, says Paul. And you can tell how mad he is because you see this, uh, there's a rhetorical question. Or don't you know that the saints, or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? Question. And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Question. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? Question. You ever done this to your family or your dog? All right, not your family. Your dog, you know, you know dog, you get a new dog. We're getting a new dog. We're going to get this dog and he's going to come she's going to come in and she's going to probably do something on the carpet and the first thing I'm going to do is who do you think you are? Doing that on my thing. We tried to teach you all these things. Why can't you go outside? You you, you string rhetorical questions together when you're good and angry. You're fired up. These these are your rage moments. Well, you've got a Divinely inspired rage moment from the Apostle Paul here. And what's driving his rage? Uh, grievances against one another. Lawsuits. So does he dare go to law before the unrighteous? For the people who are not part of the church instead of the saints? Or don't you know that the saints will judge? the world. And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Don't you know that we're going to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in this church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle the dispute between brothers? You see the language? Okay, so we're going to we're going to judge the world, he says. We Christians are going to judge angels. That's how wise we are. That uh, theological turn is actually one that Paul gets from the tradition of all the way back in the Old Testament and follows through into Revelation chapter 20, which says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. That's you? Over such the second death has no power. But they, those who share in the first resurrection, you and me, they will be priests of God and of Christ. And they will, what's the word? They will reign with him for a thousand years. Who reigns? Well, princes reign. Kings and queens reign. Princesses reign. Right. Here's the way that the theology works here. Uh, Paul is basically saying that if you're united with Christ, if you are united in Christ's death, that's what happens when I profess faith in Christ, I am united in Him. So that what happens to Jesus happens to me. I share, in other words, in His experiences. And so I'm united to Christ, so I share in His death. I share, or will share, in His resurrection. And I will share in His rule. So Paul's like, you guys know this, yes? You understand that we are, you, you, you are going to, to reign over angels. The entire world, nations, will be judged by wise people like you and like me. And the Corinthians were so, you guys, up to this point, they've been so like, yeah, we're those wise people. And Paul's argument now is, um, look, if you're so wise... Uh, isn't there one of you wise enough to settle the dispute between the brothers? You guys, all this time you've been claiming you're so wise, and now you're like, well, we're not wise enough to actually sort these disputes out. Well, we're going to have to take them to, to someone else. You're not supposed to do it, in other words, in front of those who have no standing in the church. You're not supposed to do it with somebody who has no standing in the church. That's a phrase that basically means, you know, it's, it's an unbeliever. But here's, here's the question. Why? Like, what, what makes somebody who is in the church so much different than somebody who is outside the church when it comes to these kinds of judgments? Well, um, the answer is actually found a little bit further back in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 2. Paul, Paul, he makes a distinction, okay, between the natural person, which is the person who is outside the church, and what we call unregenerate people who are not saved. And he, he makes that distinction and juxtaposes that with people who are inside the church. The first he calls the natural people or the natural person. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are they're folly to him. So in other words, the way that God sees the world is, is foolishness. To the natural person. And the natural person is not, he's not even able to understand them. Because they're spiritually discerned. And he doesn't have the spirit. But the spiritual person, it's us. We, judges all things. But is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Who? Well, the spiritual people do, because they're the ones who have the mind of Christ. You see what he's done here? He's basically said, look, these people who are outside the church, they do not have the spiritual capacity to be wise enough to make judgments in line with the way God sees the world. But if you're in the church, you, you have the mind of Christ, and you're able to discern the truths about God. Your mind is being renewed in the way of thinking about God and his world that's through his lens. I I was trying to think of a good illustration for this, and I'll give you my theological one that I've done before. You'll have to excuse it. I want you to imagine for a minute that uh, in front of you sit 10 brownies, and you love brownies because they're brownies, and one of them tastes, tastes, it's like the Ghirardelli ones. You guys know the Costco Ghirardelli brownies? Yeah, you know yeah, I do. I do. So one of them is a Costco Ghirardelli brownie with nothing else in it but, but the stuff they say. The other nine, okay, your, your six-year-old son got, got his hands on some dog stuff in the yard, and he just mixed it in a little bit with those, okay? All right. So you get to have a food taster, okay? But you have a choice between two food tasters. One food taster... Totally capable, really st- sharp palate, you know, one of the wine drinkers. Hmm, is there oak in that? You know, that, that, okay. The other one, you know, they got long COVID. They're like, I can't, I can't taste or smell anything. I don't, I don't, I don't have, I haven't been able to do it for a long time. Which one are you going to pick? To discern for you, which are the Pooh brownies and which is the Ghirardelli brownie? Now, everyone in the room is not going to do that. They're not going to roll those dice. They're going to be like, you know, sorry, long COVID, but I'm going with this guy. I'm going with the wine drinker. And the reason for that is because they have the capability of discerning which is which. Paul is making basically this argument. Don't you understand that the spiritual person has the capability to make a discernment regarding spiritual things? In fact, that spiritual person judges all things. And when he judges those things, he sees it through the lens of the God most high. They have, mind, they have the mind of Christ. My wife doesn't see very well at a distance. And so sometimes, you know, she will if you take her glasses off and you say, what does that sign say? And she'll be like, I, I don't know. This is, I'm sure how why she married me because she saw me at a distance. And she, I don't know. Right? So I'm, but she can't see anything. You, you don't want her. When it comes to trying to decide what the sign says, you don't want her. You want her with the glasses. What, what, what God does in what we call regeneration, what God does when He brings the new birth on you is He basically slaps those glasses on your eyes so that when you were blind, you now see. What you could not hear is now crystal clear. And those who see and those who, see, and those who hear crystal clear, they're the ones that ought to judge. They're the ones who ought to judge, not the person who has no glasses, not the long COVID person who can't tell a poop or any from a real one. Do you see? So this is Paul's big argument. Look, we can sort this stuff out ourselves. Second, though, why should one Christian not sue another? Well, because most of the stuff we get mad about is trivial, uh, Paul uses that language, in fact, in the beginning here. When one of you has a grievance, so I'm back to one. When one, one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you know not, do not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? You're going to judge the world... Are, are you not capable of judging trivial cases? So here's here's a question, though, an interpretive question: Is he basically saying here, right? So there are different kinds of cases. There are the there are the really important cases in this world, and then there are the trivial cases. And it's only the trivial cases that you guys with the mind of Christ should should judge. All the other stuff in this life should go to a professional judge. Is that what he's saying? No, actually, he's saying. Uh, everything compared to judging the world and angels is trivial. All other judgments, trivial. You got an issue with a brother or a sister, trivial. He says, compared compared to what you will see and experience in eternity. Uh, maybe maybe uh, you are a great baseball player and you get to uh, the World Series and you hit. The game-winning hit, you know, it's a walk-off, and you run around second base, and you score the run, and everyone mobs you and jumps on you. You stand on the podium, and you're holding the trophy player of the series. You get the massive, you know, wage increase the next year when you sign your $40 million contract. But eventually, you stop playing, and your friend, you know, who lives in Palatine says hey you want to come out and play beer league softball with me and you're like all right fine you go out and you play you get to the beer league championship you hit the ball you go around second base you score the run are you going to feel the same about the beer league as you did the world series Eh, probably not why well it's kind of trivial right it's beer league in palatine (laughs) i don't know there's a bunch of fat men that's it But this is what Paul's essentially trying to say: is look, compare it compared to heaven, compared to uh, the kind of judgment you guys are going to be doing over the world and over angels and all that sort of stuff. When you when you stand in this life and you start making you know it's be, it, making judgments here, this beer league. Seriously, this is this is beer league. This is all trivial, and you do knew that, okay? I mean, if you really think about this, stuff you and I get really upset about in this world is really going to look silly in light of eternity. It really is. I say that to my own shame. This is stuff you get really, really angry about. I mean, Seriously, in 10,000 years when you're standing before Jesus Christ in eternal bliss, you're probably thinking, I don't know why I got so upset about that. When I first got married, uh, we went to, uh, my wife and I, we went to Hawaii for our, for our honeymoon, and uh, we rented a, an Alamo car. Drove all around the island, got done. Turn the car back in, and, and I, I remember when we were turning the car back in, I remember taking these Tiva sandals off. Like my prized TiVa sandals. You know, I'm young. I don't have anything, but I had Tiva sandals. I remember taking them off, shaking them out, and putting them in the back seat. Drop the car off, get a taxi back. Halfway down the taxi, I'm like, oh, I forgot the Tevas. Turn around, go back. Car's been there for 15, 20 minutes. They've got it sitting there. They're ready to washing it and stuff. I go, and I open the back. Not there. There are only two guys there. One who's washing and one who's running the place. And I say, oh, hey, do you have these Tiva sandals? The guy looks at me, pauses, and says, no, they weren't there. (sighs) I was so angry. I don't have any. This is the only good thing I have. These Tiva sandals. So mad. Yelled at him. Yelled at the other guy. How dare you guys, I'm going to take you to court <laughs> over the Tevas, right? I remember t- talking about it the rest of my day. My, my wife, who's young, patted me on the back, one, she, something she would have to do for years, patted me on the back and said, it's okay, honey, it's okay. Now, I, I st- now, I'm here now, 49 years old, I don't even like Tevas. Like, why would you even buy Tevas? And I look back at it now and I'm like, well, given my life situation and stage and stuff like that, ugh. Ugh. Why was I so worried about the stupid Tiva sandals? And the answer is because sometimes the little things in the moment look so big to us, but in light and in comparison to eternity and what we're going to experience and make judgments about, it's meaningless. It's meaningless. But the injustice, yes, but the injustice will be put right in eternity. But the money, yes, but you have, God will take care of your money. It's trivial. It's trivial. Third, uh, why is Paul so mad? Well, we, we, have a th- we have a witness to think of. Verses 3 to 6. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases... Why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? You know, the ones who don't have the mind of Christ. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between, between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and, and that before unbelievers. Isn't that interesting he uses the language of brother so much? These are this is before between brothers. There's a reason he does this in um, in antiquity. Is what we call it in this particular time time period. Family life was different than it is here. Uh, Many of us have brothers and sisters, and our biggest experience with our brothers and sisters, especially as we get older, is Thanksgiving. You know, every family's worst nightmare. Thanksgiving every every year. And you see your brother and you see your sister and you try not to talk about politics or their love lives or religion or all the other things. You just sort of navigate through it so that everyone can then disperse, go to the different places they live in the country or in the county. And we, we, we can send emails and, and send little texts between each other where it's safer. That is not at all the way families worked in antiquity. Your family was everything to you. There was no, hey, I'm going to move over to Colorado because I like it better, mountains. Nope. You lived where your parents lived, who lived with where their parents lived, who where their parents lived. You had land. You had to work the land. Everybody lived together. And by together, usually kind of in a compound, sometimes in the same house, but it had wings and things like this. You were always with each other. Your reputation was tied to your family name. If you did something to make your family name negative, it would bring shame upon you, your brother, your parent, the whole family. It would last generations. You will always be the guy who did that thing, or the family who had a guy who did that thing. It was so important that in the Jewish law, if uh, I have a brother, if I have a brother and his wife dies, it's my responsibility to marry her. So that I can take care of her and keep her within the family. Family was was everything. Your wife was not as important, gentlemen, as your brother. She's a, she's someone who came in from the outside. Yes, she's important. Fantastic, yes, but brothers are forever. Family. So when Paul writes this, he said, Don't you get your brother goes to law against brother? Do you know that when you guys go into the marketplace and you stand there and you are family, right? In God's God's mind, you're family. What kind of disrepute are you bringing upon the family? When you're airing dirty laundry out in the middle of everyone. Look at the last uh, phrase here. Um, And that before (laughs) unbelievers. You see his point? That before unbelievers. Uh, look, when Christians treat one another so poorly, others just don't want to have any part of that Christianity. They just don't. I've made a point repeatedly over the last few months in several different places that I've been speaking publicly, and it is that there's been this massive shift that's gone on in the last number of years about how the church is seen by the wider society. It used to be that there was affirmation, hey, you guys are great, to indifference, eh, you do you, to opposition, which is really what we face now. You Christians are wicked and evil. Because we face a world today where opposition is the, the general tenor of what we get from the people outside the church when we are trying to reach them with the gospel, because opposition is what we're facing, it is especially hard, okay, when you harden them even more. It's hard enough as it is. You don't want to tick him off at the front end, do you? A friend was telling me the other day that uh, he he was involved in a lawsuit where they give depositions. And it was between Christians, the lawsuit. And the court reporter, he notes, And he could tell during the, during the, the, the deposition that this reporter was just... Shocked and dismayed about what was being said So anyway, after everybody left the room, this this gentleman, another one He he walked up to her and said "Uh, We just want you to know This is not what Christianity is really all about And she shook her head and said I don't know I was kind of part of it when I was younger But I am so glad I have nothing to do with you people Yay, team We have a witness to think of. Fourth, um, why, why shouldn't we get in lawsuits? Because we're forgivers, not fighters. We're forgivers, not fighters. Michael Jackson said something like that. He was always right. Everything, Michael Jackson was right. That's the lesson today. To have lawsuits at all with one another, listen, so have lawsuits at all with one another is already a Defeat with you now. Look, I probably need to make it clear here that this is you've noticed all the way along that we're talking about civil litigation here. This, we're not talking about if somebody does something wicked and illegal to another person in the church. It, we go to the cops, we go to the police, say, Oh, there's some sort of sexual, uh sexual uh, oppression or some sort of act that's gone on in the church we don't say well the bible says you shouldn't have any disagreements with each other so we're gonna bury this under the carpet over there no 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 no, no you go to the police about that somebody's broken a law this has to do with civil litigation i'm mad at that person because i believe they defrauded me the court doesn't believe necessarily defrauded or not but we're going to try to sort this out that's what we're talking about to have lawsuits at all to have civil litigation at all with one another is already A defeat for you. Uh, This is a fascinating statement, because basically here's what he's doing. Um, For Paul, when people read this passage, oftentimes they're saying to themselves, yeah, what Paul really wants us to do when we have disagreements with each other is to find another Christian, right? Who has the mind of Christ who can adjudicate between us. And yeah, this passage says something like that. Uh, What Paul's done is, okay, I got a lawsuit. Am I going to bring it before unbelievers? Uh, Or am I going to bring it before a believer? Or am I going to bring it not at all? The argument he's making here is, no, maybe, oh, I wish you would. Right? Right? Uh, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already defeat for you. Why not why not rather suffer wrong? Well, what am I gonna do if I get don't if I get, a lawsuit, don't, get don't do a lawsuit? What am I supposed to do? Um, you could you could suffer wrong. Yes, but they defrauded me. Well, you could also be you could also be defrauded. But you yourselves, you wrong and defraud e- even your own. Your own brothers. You guys do realize that when, G- when Paul says something to this effect, he is, he is appealing to a tradition among Christians that should not be argued about. By, by tradition, I mean, uh, okay, Matthew uh, 5, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaking. Um, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I, Jesus, say to you, don't resist the one who is evil... But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Oh, you want to sue me for that? Here's my coat too. Uh, Romans 12. If possible, says Paul, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved Christians, never... Avenge yourselves. Well, what am I supposed to do then? You leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. Uh, when Jesus is going to the cross, right, he, he's, he's being whipped and scorned and he's on trial. He has soldiers actually spitting on him and mocking him, and he gives no response. He is then called to carry his cross between jeering crowds of people who he made... In fact, he is holding together actively the molecules of their bodies while they blaspheme him, while their spittle is dripping down his face. He is then put on a cross where he's defecating himself, and people are walking by on the main road saying to him, oh, if you're the son of God, bring yourself down from that, oh, king of the Jews. Tell you what, if somebody did that to somebody did that to Thor, what's happening? Right? But here's Thors king and he's he's on the cross and he gives no response. So when Paul calls a bunch of Christ followers to follow Christ He's making a pretty sound argument. We're forgivers. Not fighters. Jesus has marked out a way for us and it, 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 when we're wrong. And, and guys, it doesn't include vindictive lawsuits. It doesn't. Two more. Why should we hate lawsuits? Why is Paul so mad? Because having lawsuits with each other is a sign that you might be deceived. And we shouldn't be deceived. We shouldn't be deceived. Uh, you guys ready for this to get a little crunchier? Here we go. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom? Now, he, everyone says, I'm unrighteous. is everybody unrighteous? Yes. Yes. But in this context, what he's saying is those outside the church and those perhaps in the church whose lifestyles demonstrate continued unrepentant unrighteousness. Of what kind? Well, he's going to tell you in what kind in a second. Do you not know that the unrighteous that they will not inherit the kingdom in other words when they stand before God at the great day of judgment they will not receive the kingdom Even though they might have thought that they were Christians all this time they won't receive it and that's why you can understand why he says well don't 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 be deceived don't lie to yourself Because specifically he says neither the sexually immoral, you remember last week we talked about a a man who was having sexual relationships with his stepmother and the church was excited about it. Paul's like, yeah, no. If that person persists in this act, even though we've put them through church discipline, they persist in this act. What does it say about them? Well, that they will not inherit the kingdom. Nor idolaters nor adulterers, nor nor men who practice homosexuality. There's two words here that are used about homosexuality. Uh, For lack of a better description, it describes the active male participant, the dominant male, and the receiving male. The way it worked in antiquity in in the Roman society is that if you were the dominant male, everyone's like, yeah, man, you're just being a dude. That's how you do it. But the other was seen as being wicked and horrible, the effeminate receiving male. But what Paul's doing here, he's saying, no, no, both of them are. Whole thing, it's wicked, all of it. The language he even uses, some of the words here are drawing you back to Leviticus chapter 20, where he has a massive list of all the things that are wrong with sexual relations between people, and homosexuality is one of the big ones that he includes there, among other things, like bestiality. Nor men who practice homosexuality, so in other words, somebody who is an unrepentant, persisting in calling themselves both a Christian, but also doing the sin and justifying it, will not inherit the kingdom. Nor thieves, nor, ooh, the greedy Nor drunkards, revilers, and swindlers, they won't inherit the kingdom of God. Why did I circle uh, the word greedy? Well, actually, because it's the same word that is used in Luke chapter 12. What's going on in Luke chapter 12? Well, this guy, okay, he has a brother, an actual brother, and he comes to Jesus and he says to Jesus, Look, teacher, I need you to settle the dispute that I'm having with my brother, I want you to tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So here we've here we got an interesting legal case. The older brother is, ex, is receiving all of the money and there probably is within the will some statement saying that he's supposed to share it with his younger brother but the way it worked in those days is that older brother, as soon as you get the money, you can do it what you want. Right? You don't have to honor the desires of, the, of, of, of your father. You don't have to. So he... Older brother's like, no way, I'm not giving this kid anything. I can't stand him anyway. So the kid, the younger brother, goes to Jesus and says, sort this out, right? Isn't he basically doing what this, this text says? Go find somebody who's wise, who has the mind of Christ more than the mind of Christ. So he shows up and he says, Jesus, sort this out for me. And Jesus says, who made me judge an arbiter between the two of you? Which is a little bit of a shocking statement because I'm like, mm, The Bible? Right? You're supposed to be the judge and arbiter. What's he getting at? Listen to what he says in the next verse. He said to them, take, take care. So he said to them, not just, the, not just the guy, not the brother. He turns from the brother and he speaks broadly to everyone else. And he says to them, take care and be on your, on your guard against all. That's the word. Same word. Greed. Greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. <laughs> you see what he's saying? See, the, the, problem with, the problem with it, with the lawsuit, is it's not really about the lawsuit. It's not really about justice. It's not really about righteousness. What it's about is greed. The, the reason you want what you want is because you're going to get paid, baby. So Jesus points it out with this guy and says, look, before we talk anything at all about what, who you're going to sue and who you're not going to sue, can we first deal with the issue of greed that's in your heart? And then the rest of the passage, he's like, you know, you shouldn't worry about all this stuff because, you know, uh, God cares for you more than he cares for the sparrows. And God cares for you more than he cares for the lilies of the field. You, know, you don't need to fret over these sorts of things. You don't to get a massive dispute with your brother over them. God knows you need them. He's a good God, this God who knows you need them. But here's the big, pain, here, here's the big point, okay? Uh, when he's saying this, this is his point. <laughs> Don't be deceived. In other words, our profession is meaningless if not matched by our practice. Our profession is meaningless if not matched by our practice. We lie to ourselves if we think we can unrepentantly persist in greedy lawsuits or sexual immorality and still expect to inherit God's kingdom. Oh, I'm going to say it again, just so we're all on the same page. You've seen the text yourselves, yes? I put it on a screen for you. I just read it. You tell me, if I'm not reading this, exactly the way that Paul meant it. We lie to ourselves if we think we can unrepentantly persist in greedy lawsuits or sexual immorality and still expect to inherit God's kingdom. Which is something Jesus warned all of us about anyway. Not everyone, he said, who says to me, Lord, Lord. Well, that's a good profession, isn't it? It's not just that he's your Lord. He's Lord, Lord. I'm doubling down on the fact that you're Lord. See that? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven or inherit it. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The one who, who what? Who does it. Not just professes it, but practices it. Some will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we, didn't we, uh-oh, prophesy and cast out demons and many mighty works? That sounds like a pastor. That sounds like a missionary. That sounds like some guy who's gone out into the bush and has seen God work through their hands. And then I'm going to declare to them, I never knew, for, knew you. Depart from me, you workers of, there it is. Lawlessness. See, the issue is not what you say, although it's important. It's whether what you do matches what you say. So when you read that, what we call vice list, when you read the list that I just gave regarding that, and you see in that list a sin, an outstanding sin, sin that you know that you're guilty of and you know you're persisting in it. You know that you're continuing down that track and you you come to church and you make your professions and you talk about it. you sing the songs and raise your hands and go to the prayer meetings and read your bible but behind the scenes you're still per- perpetuating in this sinful activity. I just don't want you to deceive yourself because according to what the Apostle Paul says on his authority as God's representative, what he's saying is, you're not inheriting the kingdom. Regardless of what you say. It's only those who do the will of my Father who are in the King. You see the stark warning here? So let me finish with some good news. Last one. Why shouldn't we have lawsuits with each other? Well, uh, we're just not who we used to be, guys. And, as, and, and such were, some of you, such were. What do you mean? That list. Paul's like, yeah, that was a description of your life before Christ. Such were some of you. But you were washed. Notice, notice the passives. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God took you. You were the object of his actions. He took you, and he washed you clean. You guys ever been camping? A great old, there's a great joke Jim Gaffigan tells. He, he, he says, you know, we use the phrase happy camper all the time. Right? Why, why do we use that? The, ha- the happiest camper is the one who's leaving the campground because he gets to take a shower, right? So, but right? Have you ever come off that camping and, and you're you're standing in the shower and you're like, oh, wash it all away, Lord, wash it all away. I smelled horrible. There was dirt in places that I don't have places, and it's just awesome. And you come back out, and what Paul's saying here, see, you've been washed. The Spirit of the living God has come and He has washed you in the name of Jesus Christ and made you pure and holy and spotless. Why are you jumping back in the mud? Why are you going back to the dumb campground? Live as clean people. Live as people who've received sanctification and justification and and washing He shakes his finger at people. You won't inherit the kingdom, he says. You won't inherit the kingdom. But that's not who you are. That's not who you are. You might be acting that way right now, but I know know better. You know better. That's not who you are. We just aren't the people that live this way anymore. We've been washed. So stop jumping back in the mud. So let me finish all of this with just three specific words to three specific groups of people who are probably listening to me. Number one, to those who've been wronged, who are incensed by the way things have happened, how they've been treated by other Christians, you you could come up and you could tell me stories that would make my head spin. You struggle to even deal with the church at all. Some of you are sitting at home. You're not even sure you want to be a part of it at all because the church is so mean to each other. There are specific people in your mind that you think of, yeah, that person wronged me, that person wronged me, that person wronged me. Can can I just ask, can you leave it to the wrath of God? Like, I know you want vengeance. I do do too. I know you rage fantasies. I know that you come up and you think, if only, if only, if only, if only. Can you leave it to the wrath of God? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. "I, I will repay. You can hand that over to him. Until you do, you're not going to be free. You're just not going to be free. It's going to plague you. Second, uh, to those who are considering suing. They've been wronged. They don't just feel it, but they're like, man, I'm going to take this. This is so horribly, horribly, horribly wrong. You remember what I talked about in the very beginning? So I go and I sit down with the parties at play in this, right? The seller and the buyer. Some of the hardest meetings I've ever had in my life. I sat down across from the guy who sold, who's lost millions of dollars. And I asked him this question. I said, look, uh, if you had lost only $50 and not $5 million, would you be suing? Well, of course not. I, of course I wouldn't do it. So it's not really about the principle, is it? What is it about, you think? five million dollars. What are you talking about? Okay, man, but let me, let me just tell you a story about this guy who came to Jesus and told him, uh, I got an issue with my brother. And Jesus didn't answer him. Instead, he said, you know, be careful. But all kinds of greed What I'm asking you to do if you're considering suing somebody is to think deep down inside. Is the reason that you're trying to do that is because you're trying to defend your reputation or you're trying to get more money or what? You do realize in the light of eternity, these things are so meaningless. Your reputation is not found in you anyway as Christian. Your reputation is found in Jesus. He's got a pretty good family name. You don't need to defend your name. You don't need to stand up and say, I am important. No, you don't. You don't have to. And you don't need the money. It'd be nice. Maybe. It also might draw your heart away from God. Maybe God's not giving you the money because he knows that you're going to miss out on the real treasure. Eternity with him. If he gives you some paltry sum here while you bury your brother in Christ. Don't deceive yourself. And finally... To those who read all this and say, most of this is in my past in the sense that I've done this stuff. Like, I've sued. I've had issues with other, and I, and I persist. I read it, and I'm persisting in these kinds of sins. What, I mean, what do I do? They're not going to even inherit the kingdom. What, what do I do? Well, you, you get in the shower. Like, don't, are you, basically, aren't you just going? Solution is always toward Jesus and not away from him. You walk toward Jesus and say, look, I got myself muddy again. I have a habit of this. But will you wash me clean and our Lord Jesus will take his fire hose and be ready to go. Because some of that stuff needs some pressure to get it off. But he will take it and he will wash you clean again and again and again again to run from him. The solution is to come back. Admit that you don't have it all together. Bow before his face and he will comfort you, cleanse you, sanctify you, welcome you back on the road that you were walking. You don't need to stay away. Just get in the shower. Isaiah said it better than I just did though. Uh, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Let me pray. Father, I'm thankful for uh, your kindness to us by giving us passages like this. I'm even thankful for the frustration that Paul had with the Corinthians over stuff like that because when I read it, I think, holy smokes, they're us. And because they're like us and we like them, would you do for us what you did for them? Would you grant us ears to hear the hard words that the Apostle Paul said. Would your spirit come and do the work of application and pressing it deep in our hearts, the places, Lord, where we strayed from you or the places, Lord, where we want to do something different than what you called us to do? Would you push us? Would you push us ever so gently by the power of your spirit back toward our Lord Jesus where we can receive grace upon grace? Our skins are Our sins are are like scarlet, but you, you will. You will make them white as snow. It's in that promise that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.